This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. What do we mean when we use the word wild, and why does it matter? What is a wild garden? In 2017, the New York City urban landscape, commonly known as the High Line, celebrates its official fifth birthday. This milestone is being marked by the publication of a new book entitled Gardens of the High Line, Elevating the Nature of Modern Landscapes, co-authored by plantsmen Pete Udolph and Rick Dark, with graphic design by Lorraine Ferguson. Udolph is the plantsman responsible for overseeing the planting design and plant choices, and Rick Dark has documented and collaborated on the project since its inception. The specific garden design and plant choices of the now-famed and highly visited Gardens of the High Line is of global interest and a primary focus of the new book. But the philosophy and design ethos underpinning the layered meaning in the book's subtitle, Elevating the Nature of Modern Landscapes, is absolutely as compelling. Author, Photographer, philosopher, and landscape ethicist Rick Dark joins us via Skype today to discuss both aspects of the High Line in greater depth. Welcome, Rick. Thank you, Jennifer. Pleased to be talking with you. How did you come to this work in life? What led you to becoming a landscape ethicist and designer, Rick? I originally planned to be a mechanical engineer and because I love space and I love certain kinds of order. Uh, I like things that move. And I realized when I got into that, that even though I liked the subject matter, it wasn't my culture. And so I kept looking. And finally, it was actually my mother that said, how about this? And she suggested a course being taught at the University of Connecticut on summer flora. And in five weeks, I was enabled to go out into the woods with Gray's botany and put a name on almost anything I saw. It was just magical transformation. I thought, Mm. I've got to do more of this. Give me some background on how you became involved in Gardens of the High Line and what your role was through the project, Rick. Well, a friend who was in public horticulture, Lenny Wilson, mentioned that he had heard about this project in New York. It turned out that I had a chance to join the co-founders, Robert Hammond and Joshua David, on a walk on the High Line in 2002. And it was everything that I had hoped it would be. And at that point, I decided I wanted to do anything I could to help make it happen. Describe what the High Line is and why there was ever the thought to create a garden there. Give the history of this industrial space that then became an accidental landscape, to use your term. You know, within the time period that we're talking about, the High Line uh, by the uh, 90s was a, a mile and a half of elevated former railway that had once been the lifeline uh, for New York. Uh, goods, uh, fresh foods, meats, you know, vegetables came down by train. It was never a passenger rail. They came down by train from Albany and points north in New York and fed the city. And uh, when trucks basically took over a lot of the role of rail in the city, the line became derelict. And as so many places like this uh, do, it filled in with wild plants and wild animals. And so by uh, the late 90s, anybody who kind of stole a few moments up there, it was, it was razor wired. So you, you had to get your way up there somehow. 
discovered this incredible wild garden. It was just breathtaking. I mean, to, for one, then and now to walk a mile and a half in the middle of New York City without encountering an automobile is a pretty rare thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It inspired Josh and Robert to create Friends of the High Line to try to reverse the then trend to have the thing demolished. There was a great right. hue and cry amongst the community that saw it as a threat to health and safety. And they thought, when are we ever going to have the chance again to make an aerial park a mile and a half long in New York? So there is this this interesting cultural evolution of this very industrial space to, as you say, being this becoming this derelict found landscape. And there were these series of beautiful photographs produced by uh, the artist Joel Sternfeld in 1999-2000. And there was something about these were really catalysts for people saying, no, wait, there is something really beautiful, really magical here. And in the book, so the book for listeners has a wonderful in-depth introduction and preface giving you history of the space of this railway of the the industrial construction of it and the um, aesthetic elements of that and then the description of this this group of really interested and passionate people finding this space becoming involved with it and taking on this project to make it into a garden which was a monumental project and there is this lovely relating of the story um, and I forget which of the founders received this letter. It was Robert. It was Robert. He received a note that said you know whatever is going to happen I just hope some part of the wildness will be maintained no doubt you will ruin it and him pinning this this note up on his office board and making a really profound commitment to himself to try really hard not to do that when this person said no doubt you'll ruin it what did he mean by that well let's get back to Joel's Photographs. Joel is an artist. He's a gifted photographer, but he's an artist at heart. And he he captures things and he visualizes things and he articulates things that so many people can't see. And Joel was deliberately engaged by Robert to photograph the High Line. And he did it up there, kind of a solitary exploration. And the images are still to this day, they are just breathtaking. And what he did is he, he made a completely wild space look like a garden. And so many people responded to those images that Robert realized they've created this expectation that is going to be really hard to meet because there is this very palpable, wild, free landscape up there that has all these seasons to it. And how do you design something like that? It really hadn't been done before. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, they, they did this series of, um, design charrettes. Uh, I mean, the first one, they got some 739 entries from 36 countries. They eventually whittled that down. And the uh, the winning entry by um, uh, Jim Corner, James Corner's uh, field operations, uh, was remarkable because it was so sensitive to what was up there, yet they realized they had to remake the place. For one, the the, the physicality of the place is such that even though the steel up there is is pretty strong. Uh, the High Line is basically a concrete bathtub set into steel. And it all the drains had plugged over the years. There was a lot of uh, uh, rusting going on. And, and uh, it was lead painted. So that they knew that they were actually going to have to 
take everything off of there and redo it. They mm-hmm. didn't have a choice. Yeah. And so they wanted to preserve this wildness, yet knowing that as part of the process, it basically they had to start anew. That was a fascinating realization to me. I did not realize that they basically had to gut it and then recreate to the best of their ability, capturing what what was so magical about the found landscape when they arrived. The Gardens of the High Line, as you say, is a mile and a half of elevated railway, and it has been completely reconstructed. The design process started, I think, in about 2002, and then I think the first groundbreaking for the first garden was, I think, 2009, and then they had the official sort of groundbreaking for the full set of 13 discrete spaces in 2012. Thus, we are at the fifth anniversary in 2017. The book gives you a very lovely walkthrough of each space what it's trying to capture, what the inspiration was, how it was not only designed but constructed, what it looks like through the seasons, and how it is maintained. Can you give an overview? Yeah, it it is a a series of gardens, which is why we use that title. It's not, it is, it is a, it's a a complete landscape, but there are many gardens with unique characters. It, It is best to go from south to north that's the way it was designed but you can go from north to south mm-hmm. the the intention and um, this is what Jim Corner and Lisa Switkin of, of Jim's group and the architects uh, Diller Scafidio Renfro and Pete especially what they wanted to do was to reprise that wildness they wanted to keep the character of it but they want to stay true to the place and uh, in the book we pointed out that Central Park is is the best known park in in the city in many ways, but it was done at a time when people were retreating from industry, retreating from all of this built up stuff and wanting a kind of a preserve of so-called nature. The High Line is not that. The High Line is an immersion in the city while being immersed in this regenerative wildness. In the title of the book, the subtitle of the book, Elevating the Nature of Modern Landscapes, it's actually a double entendre. We we don't Mm -hmm. mean nature in the old-fashioned sense. We mean the character. Yet so many people use nature to talk about it being some kind of sentient other. The High Line is a very modern landscape. It's full, full out recognizing that this kind of regeneration is exciting, it's romantic, it's immersive, it's experiential, and that's what needed to be captured. Beginning with it, and this is so important to it, uh, Matthew Johnson, uh, one of the architects, explained that they deliberately cut up into the structure. So you go up through these long stairs, it's called the slow stair, that positions you underneath the strength of these steel beams. And that transformation from walking from the street up through this into this choreographed arrival into a woodland up in the air is magical. And that is one of the magical moments of the High Line. When you start there, you start in Gansevoort Woodlands. You're immersed in a woods. And then what you do throughout those 13 gardens is you experience a series of transitions. Mm -hmm. You are in woodlands. You go to edge. You come out into sunny openness. Sometimes Mm -hmm. that sunny openness is a meadow. Sometimes it's very low. Sometimes it's an amphitheater. You are at all times viewing the city. You're never walled off from the city. One of the precedents for the High Line was the Promenade Planté in Paris. And even though it is an elevated rail line made into a series of gardens, you can be up there and not know that you're 
up in the air. It's sometimes so enclosed, and the High Line is so transparent. Uh, the palette of the High Line ranges from uh, layered woodlands, starting at the south in, in Gansevoort, uh, on up to uh, deliberate overlooks that are uh, quite deliberately positioning you to view, uh, views uh, to the west or to the east, to um, open spaces that are grassy and kind of have some of the magical signatures of Pete's work, that all these layers and the herbaceous layers and shrub layers mixed in with grasses that move and change with the seasons. And then you go back into uh, narrower spaces. Uh, Chelsea Thicket walks you through a very intimate woodland space. That opens up again into a meadow walk. It, it uh, continues into a flyover, which is an elevated section, which gives you views north up to Hudson Yards, which is just a, it is now the largest private residential uh, and commercial real estate venture in the history of New York. It's phenomenal. And to view it from the High Line is equally exciting. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're speaking with Rick Dark, garden designer, landscape ethicist, photographer, and co-author of Gardens of the High Line, elevating the nature of modern landscapes. We'll be back after a break to hear more about just what elevating the nature of modern landscapes means. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with author, photographer, and landscape advocate Rick Dark about his newest book, Gardens of the High Line, co-authored with Pete Udolph. The book is just out from Timber Press. Welcome back. So in 2004, when the process got started, the found landscape at that time included uh, 161 different species, about equal measure of native plants to that to the northeast in that area, and 79 introduced. So in this world of constant debate in the, in the plant circles over the relative value of an introduced species versus a native species, to know that this found landscape that, that created itself, that situated itself, and these plants were, you know, kind of battling it out, there was this equality between plants that were here originally and the other plants, and there was a certain balance. Like, that's a beautiful thing to be able to to recognize and, and witness, that I thought was fascinating. And then in the reconstruction, I believe at last count, the diversity is something like 400 different species. Yes, and as we did say in the book, that's a numerical diversity. Right. Um, a friend and colleague, uh, Norbert Kuhn, who's on the faculty at the Technical University in Berlin, made the point in a publication he did on intentions for the unintentional. He's a manager of wild vegetation. He pointed out that this kind of spontaneous regenerative vegetation that clothed the High Line when it was first kind of rediscovered is the ultimate in authenticity because it is thriving there without our support. And whether it's native or not, all the things that were on the High Line when that herbarium vouchered uh, inventory were, were done, nobody was watering them, nobody was tending them, nobody was cutting them back, nobody was fertilizing them. There's something to be said for that, whether it's native or not. They are really pretty much low-maintenance individuals. Yeah, and that concept of that being authentic, you know, wildness, is is really asking us as as people as nature lovers as gardeners as plant lovers 
to expand our idea of what authentic means now. And it gets to what I find powerful about the gardens of the High Line is representing, and that is this beautiful respect for the patterns and the processes instead of a slavish reproduction to something that is no longer authentically there. Yeah, well, you could say, what is the native uh, habitat that is 40 feet in the air in New York on steel and concrete? Right. You know, <laughs> so we go on assumptions and we don't ask ourselves enough questions. Mm. I did an earlier book just a couple of years ago with Doug Tallamy, a friend and a colleague called The Living Landscape. And in it, because Doug is a behavioral ecologist and ornithologist and entomologist, we made the statement that it's maybe time to stop worrying about where plants come from and worry about how they function in the landscape. And that is certainly the ethic that Pete adheres to and Jim Corner and Lisa uh, and, and the Friends of the High Line. If you look at what's up on the High Line now, uh, it is not a recreation of the plants that were there when it was a found place. It's a recreation of the types of plants, a lot of the patterning of those plants. Mm -hmm. It is a recreation of a landscape that has authentic wildness, that has a great capacity to uh, regenerate itself. But there was specific uh, notions of how could these plants add to the diversity, the functional diversity of the highlands. So, for example, when Doug and I uh, launched the Living Landscape book in New York, we had a chance to take a walk on the highline together. And in you know five minutes of getting up there, uh, Doug discovered monarch butterflies mm -hmm. uh, taking nectar from milkweeds, and there was all this wonderful symbiotic relationship up there, and yet it was the result of gardening. Mm -hmm. And so Doug said, you know, this is this is really rewarding and it's really encouraging because you can see that even when you do remake something like this with the deliberate design uh, intent, you can actually increase the biological diversity. That's where that number that goes from 160 something to 400, it is more than double. It is a garden that does require care, but the functional diversity is way up. I think that for me is the, the heart of this book. Although I love the descriptions of the individual plants and the way that it is matrix-based designing with all levels of what one would find in a untended environment. So you have the, the ground covers and the bulbs and the, the vines and then the herbaceous layer and then the shrub layer and then the tree layer so that you have that whole symphony of elements working together. It is the allowance for the dynamic process that is what I'm holding on to after finishing reading it. When, um, because I've talked directly with Jim Corner and Lisa about their take on it, and Jim said that they were very, very devoted to maintaining and enhancing a wildness up there. And Jim is a, is a landscape architect. He's quite a scholar. And so when Jim was talking about wildness, he had a number of interesting uh, nuances to it. He understands the wildness of plants. He also understands the wildness of human behavior up there. And he wanted to make sure that a lot of that, the joy and that resiliency and somehow the, the kind of palpable uh, vitality or fecundity that was up there when it was discovered was was captured in the design so that people's behavior would be uh, 
appropriate to that. And I think they managed that. And, and when they were looking to get someone who could really handle the detail of the planting, they asked Pete to join them because they saw that Pete, as an artist of the way these plants move and change and go through their seasons, it's pretty unique. And so he can do things that are beautiful while at the same time, he is really celebrating biological process. For example, this business of, of wild and wilderness, uh, as we said in the book, wildness is quite different than wilderness. We very often confuse the two. Wilderness is a notion of a place where there are no humans, where the last and best things exist in a pristine environment. It's a mistake to confuse it with wildness. The world is as wild as ever. The question is, how much do we invite that wildness into our lives? How much do we celebrate it? And anybody that walked the High Line when it was unmanaged saw that it changed constantly, that, that plants changed their patterns, they changed their, their volumes, their dynamics, and that all came together in a really wonderful way on the High Line. And I think it's the first time it really happened so fully in North America. And I th and it's been very gratifying to see people's response to it. I mean, they're getting more than 7 million visitors a year now. These concepts of regenerative, dynamic living landscapes and this difference between wild and wildness versus wilderness with a capital W. Why is this so important going forward, Rick? The reason that it's important to think about what is wild and, and uh, why it matters is that as gardeners, we know how to grow plants. And, and traditionally in horticulture, you start with kind of a tabula rasa and you plant things there and you just try like hell to keep them in the patterns you put them in. Mm -hmm. The more modern model is to say, I'm not going to judge myself a successful gardener if I can keep something alive. I'm going to judge myself as a successful gardener if I can put some plants in place and they can keep themselves alive in the place I've created for them. It's a very different model. It's giving up a bit of control, and that's very hard to do <laughs> for humans, but it it is growing into the idea that you are influencing. You are a steward, but you are not the dictator. You are not the one that is always waving that baton and saying, do this, do that. You are standing back sometimes and saying, I'm going to trust you. Find find the the opportunity that you will, talking to a plant or a bee or a butterfly, uh, and let me take pleasure in those relationships that evolve in something that I maybe set into motion, but I can't say it's my work, it's my design. And I think it takes people like Pete and Jim and Lisa and others involved with the High Line to start something into play, knowing that it will change. It's really antithetical to a lot of design, especially, let's say, uh, a lot of engineering is so fixed. You don't want that machine to do anything except what you wanted, what you planned for it to do. But with gardens, especially a garden like this, you want it to evolve. And uh, the other thing that's really critical to this is that in the Highline, uh, and the friends of the Highline has really learned this and they're doing wonderful things with it, is it takes a different breed of gardener mm -hmm. to maintain a garden like this. If it's somebody that has been trained to grow plants very well in a very fixed, rigid set of circumstances, they'll be lost on the Highline. The kind of gardeners that are on the Highline are observers. First of all, they're trained in observation. They know how to look. They know how to watch. They intervene when necessary. 
but only when necessary. They are comfortable with a lot of things having their own freedom. This is really, their view is that the Highlands Gardens are full of a uh, communities, if you will, of, of autonomous individuals acting in concert with others, both plant and animal. And it is their job to conserve the greatest diversity, the greatest beauty, the greatest experience for visitors. It's a very different kind of gardening. Mm-hmm. I think one of the great take-home lessons of the High Line is just to be more observant as a human, more thoughtful as a human, that as, as humans, we, we do things like build cities, we build rail lines, we, we put steel up in the sky, we fill it with concrete, but then we create, sometimes deliberately, sometimes inadvertently, all these opportunities for life. And I think that the, the future, as I imagine it, as I, I suppose I'm hopeful for it, uh, the future of gardening is that we have a little bit more humility, that we're not always about controlling, and that we realize that that kind of wise, distant uh, intervention may really be the way to highly functional, biologically diverse, beautiful landscapes. Call them gardens, if you will. Uh, the... Emphasis has to change from a limited set of goals, such as I want it to be pretty. Pretty is a function. (laughs) I want it to be fragrant. Fragrance is a function. I want it to be private. Private's a function. I want it to be um, expositional. Uh, Those are all functions. Uh, When we were doing the Living Landscape book, we put the plants in a left column. We put different functions, both aesthetic, uh, decorative, environmental, ecological, across the top of the page to show that you need a mix of plants and a mix of plant communities to really fill in all the different kinds of functions that living landscapes can create. The High Line is very much an example of that, and and the stewardship that Friends of the High Line brings to the management of the High Line is very much in keeping with that. And I think that is really why we, we said this really is elevating the nature of modern landscapes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Rick. I am very appreciative of your time and your your very thoughtful answers. Thank you. It's a it's been a wonderful thing to talk to you about it. It's a project that has been uh, extraordinary for anybody that's ever walked it or ever even thought of it. And I hope uh, those listeners that haven't will get the chance someday. Rick Dark heads Rick Dark LLC, a Pennsylvania-based consulting firm focused on the design and management of living landscapes. Dark's work is grounded in an observational ethic that blends art, ecology, and cultural geography. My conversation with Rick went on for more than an hour. Find this week's audio archive and this week's audio extra in which Rick and I speak more about flux, the poetics of space, chaos and order, the art of observation being a life goal, and that there are, in fact, as many seasons as the mind's eye can discern, certainly not just four, all at mynspr.org. For more information, including many photos, please visit jewelgarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. 
I'm Jennifer Jewell.